This is Luke Gygax. Having trouble with the antithesis of wheel? Don't worry, you've come to the right place. You're listening to Save or Die. Save or Die, episode 126. Yeah! Da-da-da! Yeah, yeah. And joining you is the helm of telepathy that only works with cats, DM Mike. And also in the magic cabinet, we have a wand of wonder herself, DM Liz. Hello. And the deck of many things over in the corner, DM Jim. I will grant you wishes, and then grant you reasons to burn the wishes. <laughs> and Mead will now draw 13 cards at once. <laughs> Again. <laughs> We're here to talk about that an obscure TSR campaign world created for Imagine Magazine back in the mid-80s called Pelinor. It was designed for both classic and AD&D, so we're going to feel it's open game to talk... Yeah open season to talk about it for classic D&D. And not hold it against uh, Roll for Initiative if they also cover it later. Yeah, that's fine. Um, actually, I think they already covered it, but whatever. In fact, uh, thinking about it, they covered the Kelry compilation. There is a huge amount of fan material for Pelinor, something like 260 pages but we're just going to concentrate on what was actually published in Imagine Magazine from issues 16 to 30, which is like April of 84 to October 85, I think. So vintage Pelinor. Yeah. Quote, unquote, <laughs> canonical Pelinor. Canon. Canonic. Yeah, I know. I don't often get to use the word canonical when it comes to classic D&D, so well, get that in while we can. But... First, get down, get down, get down, get down. The Save or Die email hot tub time machine. Come here, you scrumptious little beauty. Here I go once again with the email. Every week I hope that it's from a female. Oh man! Nothing. No. Do you have an email? We Oddly enough, we do have emails, yes. All right. Okie dokie. Well, our first email is from Robin Irwin. Robin. And Robin writes, Dear Sodcasters, In December of 1980, 
Tom Moldvay wrote the following in his foreword to the D&D Basic Rules. I was busy rescuing the captured maiden when the dragon showed up. Fifty feet of scaled terror glared down at us with smoldering red eyes. In the winter of 1981, those words captured the imagination of a lonely sixth grader who had recently changed schools. Who might have been that lonely kid? You guessed it, that sixth grader was me. Thank you, save or die, for you have been especially helpful in reeling me back in time, back to my first exposure to that wonderful book and that incredibly fantastic game. Aww. Oh, welcome. Working as intended so, then, right? Yeah. <laughs> So, on that account, I would respectfully ask you to please consider discussing the creative elements of the Moldvay basic rules, such as the choice of font, the selection and arrangement of topics, the art, and especially the cover piece by Errol Otis. Further, one might have read about Gary's Appendix N on a variety of blog posts out there, but I've never had the pleasure to read about the basic rule books, page B62, filled with a slew of inspirational source material and authors' names. Good Finally, point. in the basic rule books acknowledgments on page B2, Mr. Moldvay refers to thousands of letters mailed to TSR. Does anyone remember writing to TSR when they were young? I do. Were they answered? Mine was. If there has already been a review of the Mold Vase set by Save or Die, then please accept my humble apologies. Your friend, Robin Irwin. P.S. It was a terrific pleasure meeting all of you in person at the North Texas RPG Con this year. I promise that I will do my best to bring my wife along next year. I will most certainly encourage her to game with us. Thank you once again. That is Sweet. cool, and I would very much like to meet your wife, Robin. So, if you can get her to come, that would be awesome. What a nice I letter. Mean, I think we did cover the Mold Vase set, but it was way back, like, before issue 20 or something like that. It was long, long ago. And I don't think we really covered the B62 um, listings of source material, etc., that was in there. I no, it would be int interesting to compare it to the Gygax Appendix N to see where they differed. I'd completely forgotten about it when we got this letter. I looked it up, and I couldn't believe the stuff that was in there. My brother ran his first D&D &D campaign uh, based off of Robert Asprin's Another Fine Myth, and I'm looking at it right there on the <laughs> list. That's where, that's where he got the idea. Oh, cool. I remember reading those books back in the day. Yeah. I've still got a few of the old hardback, not the hardbacks, the paperbacks. I think I've kept the first five books, maybe, of the series. That's perfect. <laughs> I mean, we were teenagers, but we were into it like those kids in Stranger Things, so we didn't know any difference, and none of us had read that book, so we just show up to play D&D, &D and there are interdimensional imps popping um Te technological crossbow bolts at all the magic users, including me. And I'm like, and we didn't. We thought my br we thought my brother was the coolest DM ever. But anyway, um, it's a good list. It's got a lot of stuff on there, including uh, young adult fantasy books that aren't obviously an appendix in. That would be cool. Well, even though we've already covered it, if there's interest, you know, we could always cover it again. So anyone out there who agrees with Robin, write in or call in. Let us know. And we could cover it again. 
have a retro retro or something. And... <laughs> Moldvay revisited. Because that, well, that was probably five or six years ago. Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> ah. You guys have been doing this a long time. It, yeah. it doesn't seem like we've been doing it that long. You know, it feels like maybe we've been doing this for three years tops. It doesn't feel like it's been longer than that to me. Yeah, but we started just... in 2010. Oh, wow. <laughs> You're very anyway. good. You, you podcast a long time. You're very good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're still alive to tell the tale. So anyway. Okay. Next Our next email is from Carl. And Carl says, Mike! Mike! What? Mike! (laughs) What? (laughs) I am in complete 100% agreement with you about scale creep. I hate buying a cool new character figure just to find out it's ogre size next to my minis. Word. I hadn't considered 3D printing minis as a way of getting true 25mm figures again. But now I'm excited. Thanks for the show. I'm glad I w- it was... I'm not the only one that's that's had some grumbling about creep. And I happened to be looking through a calendar, yeah, a catalog a day or two ago and saw people starting to sell 32mm figs. Like, really? Liz may have a point, though. I was going to say, personally, I think we're just, we're all getting older. It's getting harder for us to see those (laughs) tiny little details when we're trying to paint our minis. And so minis are slowly getting bigger and bigger and bigger as our eyes fail us. Well, I have a question for you two. I have a related question for you two. Back in the day, early 80s, Grenadier or Ralpartha? Both. Um, If you had to pick one. Your preference was? Oh, probably Ralpartha. I mean, I liked my Grenadiers, but Grenadier could not do up a decent female figure to save their life. They they could not. They were all men with breasts. And uh, Ralparthas <laughs> were really nice, but they were kind of smaller and thinner, so we tended to use those as elves. So uh, The men, anyway. Which so, one? Yeah, I ag- agreed. Ralpartha. It's like... It was hard to find, you know, I mean, even Ralpartha minis, you know, they weren't great for females either, but they were better than Grenadier. And that tended to be what I was always trying to, to find, was a decent female mini for myself. Well, that makes so. that makes perfect sense given your scale creep, you know, hatred, because the even though Grenadier and Ralpartha were both basically true 25s grenadier i liked grenadier better because the bigger heads and weapons appealed to Mm -hmm. me as as a cartoonist next to the ralpartha and those ralpartha guys were were obsessed with true 25 everything like the hands holding the sword are going to be true true to scale with the 25 millimeter figure Mm -hmm. now when julie guthrie came on the scene with grenadier and did females those really those rocked um, but until she showed up, it was, yeah, it was basically a man's head with long hair on a woman's body or something. <laughs> Sometimes even the body wasn't that great. Unless you yeah. were getting some of those 
slave girl figure sets that I'm sure many of you know about, whether you want to admit it or not. Um, Don't they, were, um, they, they, they were, yeah, they, yeah. they were. They were very. They were quite. They were so very, they were quite. <laughs> anyway, glad we were able to help out, Carl. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah, and? quite frankly, it had not occurred to me either that you could take the 3D, um, you know, program and scale it down to 25. It's like, huh, of course you can. Duh! <laughs> it, it had just occurred to me, and I was just kind of talking with my fingers crossed going oh maybe we maybe maybe but yes and i'm still waiting for chase to print out those lizard folk for us we need to get a 3d printer of our own sometime one of these days join the revolution yeah (laughs) of course then the question becomes where do we put it uh the guest bedroom yeah, because everything else is going in there. Our, our guests will love that. Oh sure. <laughs> Stay for a weekend. Print your own 3D minis while you're here. <laughs> yeah, and enjoy the the lovely sounds as it prints away like a machine gun. <laughs> you're just just start running a bed and 3D breakfast. <laughs> the next morning, you get a mini of yeah. you in your bed. Because yeah. <laughs> we have webcams. That's not skeezy yeah. at all. <laughs> so anyway so anyway we have a uh, voicemail think, yeah voicemail let's, let's let's go to voicemail hey message son this is uh dm appleseed i'm a long time listener and uh finally had a question to go ahead and post to you guys uh first of all i have to say i have not had so much experience with playing much of the older editions but i am one of those anomalies that's actually had most of their role-playing experience playing arguing. So, yeah, we do exist. We are out there. Uh, and so if you have anybody like me, uh, is the time when we revisit the whole idea of uh, really looking to arguing and you know, crazy monsters and, yes, even mists and everything that entails, uh, you know, I'd love to go ahead and speak on that for you guys. Uh, but the question I have, actually, is uh, uh, I've experienced a lot of people who it's hard to kind of group where you can kind of please everybody. And I guess that's just inherent in you know, what you're doing. But uh, how do you balance the whole uh, role-playing aspect alone with hack and slash so that you have a healthy dose of both? It seems like for some people, you know, they're really looking for a lot of role-playing in their game, and sometimes that's kind of hard to produce, especially on the fly. And some people just want to bust down some doors and kill some monsters. So I don't know if you guys have any trouble, you had any experiences with that, and uh, you know, what kind of solutions you might have with that. All right, well, thank you very much, and uh, you guys keep on doing what you're doing. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Well, thanks, DM Appleseed. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, I look at the history of role-playing, and, you know, whether it's in playing at the world or other works, they talk about, you know, when Arduin came out, it was really popular on the West Coast. So, you know, by dint, there has to be people out there who started with it. That would be really interesting. Um, as for the question, wow, that that's one of those. I think it you you have to know your group. I mean, you know, you have to, and there's no straight answer. I don't think because you're going to have players who either really like the role playing or who just want to kill stuff and roll dice. 
I mean, you you have to kind of couch that to however they want to play, and sometimes that's hard, like at a con or something. What do y'all think? Well, well it's I don't think there's a one size fits all answer to that. Um, you're if you have a group of players where you have a a mix, you know, obviously you're going to have to try and you know give a little bit of both to try and keep everyone happy. Um, yeah, I mean... Yeah, if you're starting off with a new group, I would think it would probably be behoove you to try to either do an adventure half and half or make it more hack and slash than role play because I've had the experience, my experience anyway, is that role players will tolerate a little initial hack and slash, but if you try to shoehorn hack and slashers into role playing they get annoyed and and less tolerant what do you think jim what's interesting to me about the question is how it's pertinent to 2016 because with a lot of the games my personal experience is running games at a game store where there's not i mean there's a core group that's supposed to show up but it's very laissez-faire some people don't show up some games and it it's hard. I took it as a sign when I uh, ran the initial MCC playtest. After about a year and a half of the so-called campaign, it finally some <laughs> role playing started to happen, and I and then and that's the point where I'm like, okay, now it's really a campaign. It's not just Jim showing up, going, "Here's tonight's adventure." You know, go go be murder hobos, which is my group kind of tilted that way. But then this mm-hmm. emergent role playing happened on its own, and I paid attention to it. I've also run into it when you don't want it. Like when you're when you're doing a tournament at a con game, I accidentally wrote a uh, room that was kind of a steal from that Star Trek episode where they go underground on the planet and there are these globes with old uh, gods in them and they get possessed by them. I wrote a Sargon is here. Yeah, never fear, (laughs) Sargon is here. I I I wrote a I wrote a dungeon room like that. And it ground the whole tournament to a halt, because as soon as three players got possessed, they started arguing with the rest of the table, trying to get people to sides, and it went on for, like, hours. <laughs> the, the store was trying to close, and they were still arguing. And I'm like, okay, I accidentally created emergent role-playing there. I don't want to do that in a tournament, but now <laughs> but now I know what to do when I do want to have it, you know, get some role-playing going in the middle of a dungeon. Mm-hmm. So, don't know how helpful that was, Appleseed, but... Yeah, I, I do think I do think I would agree with you though about if you have the mix, you should lead with the hack and slash and introduce the role play afterwards. Um, I do know that sometimes you know we've been in groups where when it leads with a role playing scenario that's very combat light, you know you can see the hack and slashers around the table you know, very obviously getting bored. You know, they're pulling out the, you know, the the phones, they're texting, they're looking, you know, checking Facebook, you know, it, and, you know, they probably wonder, is there going to be any fighting at all? <laughs> Come on, it's been an, over an hour and I haven't said anything on fire yet. That's right, yep. you know. So I do think there is a valid point that, you know, the role players are going to be, you know, more patient and, you know, they can live with starting off with a fight and, you know, getting into, you know, well, this was why the fight happened and now you realize that something's going on. If you want to role play, here is your opportunity. 
but yeah, I think it's it's really one of those. It depends on the makeup of your group, and it's going to it's going to be a different response, you know, for every single group, depending on mm -hmm. your ratio and how well people know each other. And I've experienced if you're throwing together a one shot at a con or something, you really ought to lean toward hack and slash because that's kind of what a lot of people expect at cons, in my experience. Um, kind of off playing off what Jim was saying about you know store store games. Oh, I was going to say also I think, and I think I've mentioned this in a previous episode before, talking about con games. Um, unless you're a very you know, outgoing person or a theater major, it's hard for people to jump into role-playing if you're sitting at a convention game or a store demo game with a bunch of people you don't know. I think it's very, it's difficult to want to, you know, role-play with strangers. Um, for Unless you're Michael people. Curtis. I, I know it's difficult for me, you know, if I don't know anyone at the table... I'm reluctant to, you know, just jump right into role-playing my character. I just, mm -hmm. I'm very tentative to start off with. Well, everybody has, I mean, my personal preference as, as, as a, a judge and a DM is about one combat an hour. If I can get through three or four hours and I averaged one combat an hour, I think I did my job. But that's just me. Mm -hmm. Okay. Hope that answers things. And if anyone wants to write an email, where would they send it? Jim. Uh, save or die podcast at gmail.com or send us a vo voicemail at 940-536-3763 and on that note somebody on September 7th sent us a voicemail but Google voicemail ate it so we apologize and if you're hearing this please give us another call with the question and hopefully we can have that on the air in the future and barring anything else we will head into our Oh, so important commercial break, and then go into top five. Kenner presents you alien action figure. Now, back to Dungeons and Dragons. The Save or Die Top 5. In 5, 4, 3, 2... The World of Pelinor. That's with an E. I keep forgetting when I type it. I always put Pelinor with an end at R. But Anyway, this was a campaign world designed in Imagine Magazine, TSR's British gaming mag from the 1980s. It uh, canceled in number 30, I think. But anyway, starting in issue 16, they decided to base all their adventures and stuff from the magazine into this new world. And it was quite interesting. It was a bit low-powered compared to other campaign worlds for TSR, especially Forgotten Realms. There aren't any really hugely high-level people in this game, in this campaign world. 
and it had a particularly British feel to it, I think. But we'll talk about that in the top five. And we're going to start with... Number five. Liz. Hey. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> okay. Um, so in no particular order, um, I guess I will start off with... One of the things that I was kind of um, impressed by, um, their system of justice that they talk about at one point throughout the, you know, various... Yeah, I was uh, emphasizing there, there's a main city that things are based around called the City League, and everything just kind of expands from there. Yeah, and um, one of the articles um, just is all talking only about the various courts of justice, etc., etc. Um, it's a much more streamlined approach than the head-splitting rules and explanations offered in that gazetteer. Was it Karamikos that had so. the labyrinthine, you know, <laughs> just on and on and on about, you know, the courts and, you know, going through them? You know, Pelinor, you know, it's, you know, individual tables, the steps from capture to arrest to sentencing, they are broken down into individual tables, and they can be used either in whole or only in part, depending on what makes sense for one's personal campaign setting. It's super modular, you can easily tweak it. You know, if I had to choose between using the Karamikos rules of the justice system and Pelinor, Pelinor would win hands down. It's just super awesome. I thought they did a really good job. And emails pour in. Woo! <laughs> well, I mean, it was it, it was really sweet system that anticipates like modern twenty first century game mechanics because those tables come with a flow chart too. I was really sharp. Yeah. Well, what's your number five, Jim? That was it. So. What's your number five? <laughs> no, no, it was it was my number three, but that's okay. Um, my number five is the uh, NPC character class, uh, free man or free woman. This is this is a brilliant little thing. I'm sure there've been ver I've seen versions of it in other settings, but this one was just nice and and straightforward and rock solid. It's a NPC character class, free man or free woman, for the NPCs in this town, so that the PCs don't roll over a bunch of level zeros and level ones. I mean, they 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 can level in this class as high as the player characters, and they get at least that club as a D6 weapon and all the benefits and hit points of being, you know, level 4 or 5 or 6, so that the players can't just go run roughshod off over every tavern keeper. Okay. It's very nicely done. Well, that's very interesting, because my 5 is the Freeman class, and I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> I can salute their intent. Because, like they said in the article, they didn't want to have, you know, everybody a fighter, magic user, cleric, thief. But the way they did it with the XP, the level advancement, the when you reach, I think it was like 8th or ninth level, you're now a noble, no longer a bureaucrat. And it just, it felt really artificial to me. So I can give them a salute for that, but I just didn't like it. 
So your problem was the uh, non-setting upward mobility of class. Yeah, because um, I mean, most nobles would be fighters in my, you know, from my medieval study. I mean, that's kind of a given. That's part of what nobility was for. It was a local warrior, you know, commander. The guy who started as a first-level freeman clerk working up to being a noble, I mean, that's very American, but it's not very medieval, you know. So On the, on the other hand, I would not, well, I wouldn't be using it in that way as far as these NPCs leveling up. I would be basically using the freeman level as just a shorthand way of telling me, okay, this guy is upper middle class you know this guy is just a well-to-do merchant but he doesn't have just oodles of influence so Um, more of a shorthand of social level okay right i wouldn't Mm. have them leveling up throughout a game campaign and you know okay you know arnold's who was a level two freeman when we started you know now he's a level 10 for no apparent reason and we have to bow to him you know (laughs) yeah but i mean they give experience point award suggestions and stuff so obviously they did intend on people xping up i totally ignore that (laughs) yeah yeah but I guess I looked at it as a way, as the player characters, you know, you're introduced to the guy who owns the the biggest uh, trading company in town. You're like, oh, okay, we can take him. Well, his name is Wilson Fisk. Oh, wait. <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> Maybe we don't no, want to do this. Not Fisk. Ah, <laughs> uh, again, the otherwise, kingman. Otherwise known as Fisk of Fury. <laughs> <laughs> what level do you think this NPC is? I don't know. Get a stick and hit him. See how hard he is to hit. <laughs> yeah. The stick shattered. I think maybe we better run. <laughs> so, anyway, that's my opinion. And in that circumstance, I would have had Mr. Fisk be a retired adventurer and have him like 8th level or 10th level fighter or something, or a monk, or whatever. A mystic, I suppose. But anyway, that's my five, so... Liz? Okay, number four. Okay, this one's kind of nitpicky. But it just bothered me. One of the first articles, um, basically it's covering the, the city league, the various shops and, you know, places of note. There is an elven character named Goldmeadow. One, one of her characteristics given for the character is that she smells wonderful. <laughs> What? <laughs> what is this even? <laughs> well, that's definitely not medieval. My, if you want to have a h- historical objection, everybody smelt like shit. <laughs> Raise your hand if you're sure. Uh. <laughs> First, and most importantly, nobody's character should be going around smelling the NPCs. It's rude. And I don't care if your character has a charisma of six. After getting their ass kicked for doing it, they will either learn and stop or they will be dead. (laughs) And second, it is just so stereotypical. Women smell nice and flowery while guys are just lucky to remember to bathe every few days. (laughs) Wow, this really pushed your buttons, didn't it? It it did. 
I and I I was not ex- I was not expecting it to, but it just really bugged me. It's like she smells wonderful, <laughs> really. <laughs> and it then doesn't I start- even say what she smells like. It's no. just wonderful. Wonderful, yeah. Uh. So I started looking, and the only male characters I could find that were ever described by smell, it was never in a good way. So again, stereotypical, the male characters smell like crap, and Gold Meadow, the female elf, smells wonderful. Liz, you fight the power. You go, girl. Yeah! <laughs> You're feminazing my D&D! Who's going to be smelling the NPCs? I mean, that's really what is like... Yeah. Who uh... does that? I don't do that. Reminds me of that uh, section from the Gamers movie when the thief was taking the guy's purse, then his sword. I want to take his pants. Why do you want to take his pants? I want him. I just want to see if I can take him. And he rolls his (laughs) dice and crits, and then he's got the guy's pants. And (laughs) Uh, yeah. So that was my number four. (laughs) <laughs> okay, Jim. You're welcome. Yeah, I think I need a minute after that. I don't know. <laughs> um, oh, let's see what I, I wrote it down, so I must have it here. <laughs> oh, God, this, this is going to sound so completely lame. Following Liz, uh, my number four was that I liked how the place names and surnames were nicely influenced by Middle English with even some Welsh, Gaelic, and Norman references. (laughs) Get the hell out of this podcast, Wampler. (laughs) No, no, I'm firmly behind that. It's not... See, see, you guys are are being, you know, you're you're being serious, you're being scholarly, that's awesome. I'm just getting upset because somebody smells good. (laughs) But I'm more interested in what you're saying than what I have to say. (laughs) But she, okay. I mean, my, I, not to step on your turf, Mike, but like where there was a place called the Wind, and it's Wind with a Y, and character mm-hmm. names like Thadric Burright. You're like, okay, that guy, that that's Middle English Lord Mor- Morvan de, de Glay. As soon as you see de Glay, you go, okay, that's Norman. Mm-hmm. Instead of the land of Zigboogledoo in the forest of Fernargonarg, and yeah, just kind of. I mean, you know, if that works for you, that's great. But, you know, especially when you get a campaign setting and that's all the naming, you know, conventions, you're just, everything runs together, at least for me. And it's like, it's not memorable. <coughs> Forgotten Realms. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Ed Greenwood. Sorry. Anyway, well, getting back to Liz's first comment. Oh, are you finished with your four? Or? Yes. Hey. But let me try and practice something Glenn was good at that I suck at. So how about you, Mike? What's your number, <laughs> what's your number four? What's my number four? My number four, getting back to the law system, I particularly liked this one. Trial by Monster. Oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> yeah, baby. Go out there, and if you can fight three monsters thrown at you, not at once, three different sets of, of battles... Not only are you set free, but the prosecutor of your case is thrown to the fourth monster. Ta-da! That's pretty awesome. I like that. Not really historical, but who cares? It's fun. 
So that's not really trial by combat. That's more like trial by XP gain. <laughs> trial by monster, yeah. Oh, I mean, you know, letting you go free is fine, but, you know, the whole thing of and we'll throw the prosecutor to the next monster is just, you know, that's the cherry on the on top as far as I'm concerned. So, I really like that. Number three. Liz? Okay. Three. Number three. All right. My number three is going to be the Weapon Designers Workshop. This was a... <laughs> oh, yeah. This was a setting um, in the, in the um, little area of the League. You know, um, and... On the surface, it just seems like a, a regular little, you know, place where you can get different weapons. Um, however, you start reading the description, and I got the distinct impression that this was an extremely thinly veiled dig at Games Workshop. It goes, it says, almost completely lacking in flair. They produce straightforward, reliable weapons at a sensible price. Just don't ask for extras, that's all. The group is entirely male and has been so since records were first kept. Periodically, as if answering some unheard call, a young male elf will arrive at the shop to work his apprenticeship, and an older elf will move on to new adventures. <laughs> I suppose it could be Game Designer's Workshop, but yeah, especially that last bit seems to smack of Game's Workshop. Well, you know, the head of Imagine Magazine, Don Turnbull, had an um, interesting relationship with Game's Workshop, and particularly White Dwarf Magazine. So, that may not be completely innocent. I, I I just got a very distinct impression of we're being snarky. It's <laughs> <laughs> like wow, this is kind of awesome. <laughs> okay, uh, Jim. That must have been a satire of Old Games Workshop because they said sturdy, reasonably priced products. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, this was the early '80s, kids. Yeah, this was this was pre Warhammer, so yeah. My number three is a, a particular article that's called Pablo Fanquay's Fair. And it's, uh, it's, it's actually very short, but it's just for, for your Pelennor setting, but they, because they're a roving troop of performers, they can show up anywhere. It's just a bunch of NPCs and a couple of uh, story plotline suggestions for how to use them. And it immediately, because I'm a Game of Thrones fan, reminded me of that scene where they took Aya... Uh, to see the performers, and she started seeing satirical versions of the prior season's events in Game of Thrones. So that this would be perfect for that. Besides a bunch of like you know, kind of half carny, half uh, perf actor, performer, juggler, rubber man, whatever NPCs to intrigue and confound the players, you could actually uh, use this as a substitute for the cliched tavern as a way to give them you know adventure hooks. Or for that matter, if they're doing adventures that are known, you know, say they completed defeating the great orc leader, you know, two eye, one eye or something, and uh, it's known in the area, you could have them doing a satirical play of it. Right, and you, it, 
we were talking about emergent role play earlier. Can you imagine a bunch of a group of people? You know, as soon as they go through a dungeon, they they got to go see the the fictionalized version of it later. Yeah, and it'll let kind of would be shorthand to let the players know how their PCs are viewed in the region. So, yeah, if they're well liked, then it'll be complimentary. If they're yeah, not, then lighthearted and fun. But yeah, I mean, if you're like. Real murder hobo, you know, I need the, the next greatest interdimensional trap for my player's mindset. This doesn't make any sense. But, it, like, it's emblematic of what you said at the top of the episode. A lot of these things are very low-key, but they're entirely lovely. And a, a crafty DM could use them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, my third is the idea given in there for the world heart. Now, mm-hmm. to explain, Pelinor is a flat world. It's shaped, it's de- uh, described like a dinner plate with the very edges being rather ca- the, the realms of chaos and law more to the center. The world heart is supposed to be the very center of the world of Pelinor, the plate, but nobody really knows where it is. But a lot of people take it as a, oh, kind of like a walkabout in the Australian terms. You know, they're on spiritual journeys of self-discovery to try to find the world art because once you find that, it's supposed to be perfect harmony in yourself and with others. And it gives a good rationale for the use of the mystic class, the sort of the classic D&D's monk. And I really liked that, and the whole cosmology behind the edges are chaos. That way, you know, there's the lands of law, but they're surrounded by chaos. And you have kind of a border entropy thing going on. I, so I really like that. I, I, to, to magnify your point, what, what that flat world map, imagine mm-hmm. that in the center of the prime material plane in Gary's big diagram of all the dimensions and other planes that it's just like okay the, the this world should be flat it fits perfectly mm-hmm. well i don't know if either of you ever read uh diane duane's young wizards series um starting with so you want to be a wizard uh um, it was for young adults book. yeah well this is mentioned at towards the end of the first book as well. World Heart reminds me very much of the concept of Time Heart in the Wizards books. Hmm. Basically, that spiritual place where you're only able to go in dreams, and it's where the true versions, you know, the best loved, the truest versions of everything exist in that spiritual place. Sort of and iconic. Right. Um, you know, hmm. wizards, if they're fortunate, you know, they get to briefly visit Time Heart sometimes in their dreams. And, you know, best loved things, people, places that are, you know, quote unquote, dead and gone in the physical reality that they live in, live on there. And no one is ever truly gone. Um, yes, but what if you're a perfect asshole? <laughs> then they will be perfect right there. Liz, uh, Liz, is it close enough that you think it's an intentional homage? I don't know. I mean, I know the Young Wizards books began three years earlier, um, you know, before the Pelinor like stuff. 81, 80, yeah, 81? 
it's possible that it will that it is an homage but i don't know i like to think that it is you know i want to think oh they read that that is so awesome because that's what i think of so i just wanted to just wanted to throw that out there it reminds me of of time heart and that it made me all warm and fuzzy inside when i read that i didn't read it because i was never a young adult <laughs> <laughs> Uh, bah humbug. Okay, Liz, over to your two. Okay, number two. All right. <clears throat> I think this is going to be another place where Mike and I, or Mike disagrees with somebody's opinion on something in Pelinor. Bah. Oh, it's a throwdown. Who ends up on the yeah, couch tonight? Yeah. <laughs> Me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) there's no contest me. Okay. I'm, I feel like there is, there seems to me to be a disparity between Imagine Magazine's initial statement that Pelinor is to be a general overview, easily inserted into one's own campaign world, and then you have the nearly immediate result, to me, of overly fleshed out settings where every single NPC has been given backstories, links to other NPCs, intrigues, etc. Um, Fie! Again, looking at, you know, all of the different NPCs in the various towns and shops and Mages Guild and everybody knows everyone and so-and-so's son is, you know, part of the Mages Guild and his parents are really sad because they wanted him to be an adventurer like their dad and, you know, this guy... Everyone has a dark secret. Yeah, you know, or so-and-so is in love with this person who's the wife of someone else and this other person is jealous and it's like, oh, you know... (laughs) You you almost immediately went away from what you said you were going to do. I I do think they attempted to pull back from that several issues later um, with the various parts of the world that they stated were going to be left permanently blank. You know, but there was just a really big problem to me with overcomplexity within the City League itself. Um, And... There was another section of the world, the town of Berghalter. You know, it comes with a historical timeline of events of the town. All these NPCs detailed out. There's a secret cult. There's just too much in some of these places, you know. So there just seemed to be kind of a disconnect with what they said they wanted Pelinor to be and what it kind of turned out to be instead in certain sections of it. Mm -hmm. Clear, concise, well presented. And Jim, <laughs> I, uh, I I disagree with you ever so slightly. I mean, I mean, your point is exactly your point is well taken because they said they were going to do one thing and then they did another. But compared to the gazetteers, this is nothing like the gazetteers, where it's just freaking overkill of info dump of you know more than you would ever need to know to run some of the settings it is a little wordy you know maybe more my taste but much much more dm friendly for skimming and yeah i'm having that i'm having that i'm having that out of it um that my mike and i were talking and i can't remember if you were uh, it was like last time last weekend or something mike and i were talking and what uh intrigues me about pelinor is where it sits in a continuum of settings that were going on at the time where you had like standard 
basic D&D settings that were just getting off the ground, then the Judges Guild craziness, Gonzo, and then the even more Gonzo of uh, West Coast D&D and Ardwin. Like, Pelennor is sort of in between basic D&D and Judges Guild, to me. Mm-hmm. In, ter- well, in, in, in funk, was, in funk well, level. Yeah, this was before the Gazetteers. Chronologically. Uh, I think they started in 86 or 87. So, um, basically, at that time, Mistara was just the known world in the back of the expert rule book, you know, where each kingdom had more or less a paragraph. But yeah, um, there was Greyhawk, the Greyhawk box set was out. Um, Forgotten Realms was, what, 88, 89? Something like. But anyway, yeah, I I can see your point. Um, There were other campaign worlds that went into a lot more detail, but I'm going to talk about that on my number two, so... Anyway, your number two, Jim. My number two is how culturally British this entire uh, operation is, because uh, you just you take the American approach to game writing for granted because we all grew up in it. But uh, recently, um, Goodman Games licensed uh, a Portuguese or Spanish language version of DCC, and they did a Kickstarter for that down in South America, and that came with some original new. Uh, DCC modules that were being written by Brazilians. And those have a whole different flavor than the American DCC things. And Pelennor is a lot like that, where um, Pelennor reminds me very much of Game of Thrones, which even though George R. R. Martin is American, it's, he's based a lot of Game of Thrones on English history, like the War of mm-hmm. the Kings and things like that. Hundred Years' War. Yeah. I mean, Pelennor, I mean, all these little bits and pieces and bobs, bits and bobs that Liz was talking about, are very proper. And everything's in its place, and and there's just mm-hmm. a, a, I'm trying to stretch to, to 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 nail down the 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 essence of what makes it cool. But it's cool because I mean, like traditional medieval setting with no screwing around, based in the British Isles. Here's a whole setting for that. Yeah, um, if you ignore the Freeman, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of gets to my complaint with some uh, American fantasy campaign worlds and it's not just D&D you know the other games the american view of a, say a medieval town is very much little house on the prairie in funny clothes it, it doesn't feel medieval it feels more like a frontier town see thank you you're going to say this much better than i was able to articulate and whereas these guys being british or even i'm sure you know any europeans are probably in the same boat you know they have a more direct experience that can give you more of that feeling of feudalism. Now, granted, a lot of Americans may not want that in their fantasy. They want a frontier town, and that's fine. Uh, personally, I prefer a more feudal feel to my stuff. And I agree, it's it's right all over this. Yeah, I, I it got, if there was a Scotsman on the writing team, I didn't mean to call everybody who wrote this British. Forgive me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of comparisons with other campaign worlds, my number two is the Knight's Ocular. Ah. That's kind of sort of secret police that uh, kind of felt like the Black Lotus from Judges Guild City State of the Invincible Overlord. And And as a very. They kept them very vague, which I liked. You can make it whatever you want to be. As good or as bad as you want them to be. 
You know, you can be make them a secret order of really good guys like the Harpers and Fantasy uh, or in Forgotten Realms, or you could make them, you know, a Gestapo. Um, and I also liked, on a side note, when they were dealing with how they associate with the Order of Heralds, which in Pelennor is not just people who identify rankings and everything. They're basically lawyers. So your prosecutor ge that gets thrown to that Oytjug might very well be a member of the Order of the Heralds. So, you know, I like that. I like that part, the way it was, uh, it was set up. You've got some familiarity, but you put some good twists on them. And the Oytjug is like, oh, he smelled of summer meadows. He was fantastic. <laughs> he, he smelled wonderful, tasted delightful. And was delicious. With a nutty finish. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Liz, take us over to number ones. Okay, my number one. There is a group, a, basically they are a child gang called the Basilisks. And I thought they were pretty, pretty darn well done. They're a fun concept of the ubiquitous, you know, Oliver Twist style child gang. You know, um, and they're not just you know, cut purses, you know, thieves, you know, they do, they do a little bit of everything. I guess they're kind of like a, a cross between the Oliver Twist, you know, pickpockets and Sherlock Holmes's Baker Street Irregulars. Oh, yeah. You know, they work as spies, too, um, mm -hmm. you know, taking advantage of the fact that nobody pays attention to kids, and so they lounge around unnoticed in places and, you know, people tend to ignore them. So I really liked the, the makeup of the basilisks. And, you know, even the, the leader of the basilisks is, you know, he's older than the others, but he's still, you know, from the way they describe him, he's kind of like a teenager. You know, he mm -hmm. moved up in the ranks and, you know, now he's in charge. You know, they really don't have, you know, they don't take a lot of orders directly from adults. There's no Fagin. Yeah. Or if there is a Fagin, he's only a little bit older than the rest of them. Okay. And I think he does try to, you know, keep them, keep his kids, you know, doing well. And, you know, he wants the, he wants the best for his gang. Okay. All right. Jim? I, I just want to retire from this episode and listen to Liz talk, because she's really kicking it this time. Um, <laughs> oh, I had it right in front of me. Oh, um, well, back to just American-style murder hoboing your way through an adventure. My number one favorite thing in all of this, because settings are not my cup of tea anyway, is the uh, idea that one can earn money by going out and capturing monsters to be used in those gladiator matches in the court system. You can go make monster money. And the whole <laughs> the whole challenge that would present to a bunch of murder hobo PCs, because they can't go out and just kill the werewolf or kill the hill giant. They've got to go out and figure out a way to catch him alive and drag him back to town. I thought Unless that was... Go ahead. Man, that reminded me so much of Mead when I read that part. <laughs> oh yeah, her her. She's Brid. always trying to capture. Yeah, Brid's trying to capture monsters and take them back. <laughs> Don't or, kill it. <laughs> I mean, you know how I, I was talking about you could skim Pelinor and find lots of great stuff to grab. I did grab that one. I'm like, okay, I'm having this right here. This is the yeah. f best idea ever. 
becomes a whole different game when you're trying to take the monster alive, or at least moderately, only moderately damaged. Okay, well, we've inferred uh, about it a lot through throughout the top five, but I'm going to say my number one favorite is the very first article. They said what I've always thought about campaign worlds. They said the problem, and I'm paraphrasing, but it was right at the beginning, the problem with most campaign worlds is that they are so detailed that there is nothing left for the DM to detail. And Pelinor was intentionally set up to be a world where there's always plenty for the DM to do. Now, as Liz noted, there are times when they may have stumbled on that path, but I think the intention was still there. And they set up a couple of whole territories, our castle and one other, where they said in the magazine, we will not write about anything here. Because this is for you to make, for your campaign in Pelennor, to make as you see fit. And I thought that was an absolute awesome way to do a campaign world. And that's my number one. Ta-da! <laughs> <laughs> so that's Pelennor. Well stated. And unless we have any other final comments, let's move into Random Encounters and talk about the gods of Pelennor. How many people want to kick some ass? There are, there are seven ogres surrounding you. How could they surround us? I had Morton Titan's magical watchdog cat. No, you didn't. A satanic fungus rises from the forest floor and says, You're playing D&D. You're playing D&D. This whole apartment is playing D&D. Random Encounters. The gods of Pelennor. Actually, we did random encounters. We were going to do monsters, NPCs, or gods, and we just ended up all choosing gods. So we'll be talking about our favorite gods. And there, Pelennor has a few that are, quote unquote, I hate to say real, um, accurate mythological characters like John Bar Barleycorn. Historical. Yeah, historical. Um, but there's a lot of made-up ones, too. So, um, John Barleycorn must die. That's what I heard. <laughs> well, of course he does. <laughs> Until next year. But anyway. All right. Well, let's start. We'll let Jim start us off this time. <laughs> start with the weak knees this episode. Um, <laughs> I, I, I did pick a god that I'm just in love with because I'm an evil bastard DM and I'm thinking of the things I could do with him. Um, and, of course, he doesn't have a name that's easily pronounced. It's spelled C-S-T-H-E-N-K-E-S. -E -E Looks a little Greek. I'm going to go with uh, Synthenkes. Riboflavin Fingleflower. Synthenkes, who is the god of despair. And... Uh, he only has first-level clerics, so you can't even get a heal <laughs> off his clerics because they don't have any spells. And his whole deal is, life is, you know, screwed up, you're going to die, and it's probably better off just to go ahead and do it now. You know? And Wow. It's, he's kind of like Krom. He's not a helper deity. And <laughs> I could just, I could just I see myself populating, you know, Making this the, 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 the city religion or something, you know, just making masses and masses <laughs> of these guys for the players to interact with and go, okay, we need to get healed. Which temple do you go to? Here's the nearest one. Okay, we want to heal. Sorry. 
you should you, you should just you don't do that. <laughs> you should just take your damage like a man, you know, very yeah. very like crom in the Conan Go out books. despair in your pain and be thankful. Cuz you got to be thankful. <laughs> oh yeah, I would totally play play the clerics and the priests like despair in the Sandman comics. <laughs> you know. Ah. <laughs> okay. Well, is there any other advantage to being a cleric of his or is it is well, that all the info that's given? Uh, well, I mean, all of these are kind of brief, but yeah, that's that's yeah. that's the bottom line. He only has he only has first level clerics. Okay, so if you're going to be a cleric of this god, you got to commit. <laughs> Sorry, we you know it was random encounter, so I just went for the thing that oh, I no. thought would screw with the players the most. Wah ha ha! <laughs> you have to make a cleric for your party, and it's got to be of this god. Ah ha ha! And since you don't get any spells at first level anyway at classics, so you're really kind of... I'm a cleric, but I have no magic at all. But here's, a, I guess he, here's a fish hook you can just randomly drag through the flesh of your own body. <laughs> you're welcome. Okay, well, Liz, who did you choose? I chose the god Mordren. And he is a... God who has been forgotten and an evil priestess has begun to start um, worship of, of Mordren again now, but she has perverted what the God stands for. Oh, um, yeah. So, basically, this priestess um, discovered some manuscripts talking about this forgotten god Mordren and you it's it kind of gives the impression that you know she has legitimately um misunderstood what the manuscripts say and something talking about you know you know giving your heart you know she's translated to mean that you know it's kind of like an aztec sacrifice you take the living heart of someone you know out as a sacrifice so um, you have a lawful deity that's being worshiped as a chaotic deity yeah hmm. um you know <clears throat> he used to be you know a god of love and you know charisma but this evil priestess is you know starting up a new religion with him as an evil god. Um, so, and she's got this, um, you know, she basically, if anyone is going to try to restore Mordred to his true self, this um, evil priestess is going to become your enemy and try to stop you. Mm. Um, so wait, and, a whole religion that worships a god that expresses nothing but kindness and loveness, but they use it as an excuse to commit atrocities and go to war? Right, and you know nobody. That never, that never happens in real life. Yeah, <laughs> no one, and no one is around who remembers. Um, however, Mordrin is manifesting himself in the in the town as this old man, um, and he's you know wandering around, very weak, diseased looking, and he's just waiting, you know, for a cleric who will, you know take him on um and worship him he, correctly right it's like he doesn't you know he doesn't want money he wants the cleric to restore the true religion of mordren and 
says if anyone will listen, he'll relate the story of the you know the twist that the wor- his worship is taken, but he will not tell you that he's actually Mordrin. You know, he's just he's this old man who is trying to get a cleric to restore the the true faith of Mordrin. Uh, uh, so. Oh. But you don't know that it's Mordrin asking you this, right. you know, and that's kind of the test. Mm-hmm. Uh, says, but if someone mistreats this old man, he'll appear again the first time that person is alone and lay a curse on them, and they'll be left with an effective charisma of three. Ouch! Woo-hoo. So, yeah. <laughs> well, that's me in the corner. <laughs> that's me in the spotlight losing my religion so that that's my guy I thought he was a, a, a very nicely tragic character and there's a, a good opportunity there for you know PCs to you know bring him back to what he's supposed to be and fight an evil priestess along the way and you know do mm-hmm. some really cool stuff there so we've got the God of Despair, who doesn't interfere in the Prime Material Plane under any circumstances and won't help you. A Fallen God, who probably can help you. Mike, <laughs> what, what cheerful God did you pick? The Graveyard Deity. <laughs> On Jura. Woohoo! <laughs> now, they're not necessarily evil. This This clergy takes care of graveyards and handles... Um, Funerals, usually beside the deity of whoever, you know, the, the deceased worshipped, you know, their cleric. But they're there, too. Um, donation, they're basically like funeral directors. And donations to them ensure good funerals, good, you know, proper treatment of the body, the, the gravestone, the tomb, or whatever. And this was pretty cool. You know, it's like a god of death, but not evil but here was the best part this is what cinched me on this god (laughs) part of the services they provide is the option if you pay enough to have your body burned on a pyre with all your belongings and your loved ones however with an additional payment they will provide substitutes for the wife or husband, or concubine, or whatever, to be thrown on the fire in lieu of the actual loved one. How civilized. Wow. Indeed. I thought that was great. <laughs> you can I, hire I, a substitute. I, yeah, I, I'm kind of getting this impression. The old guy has in his will that he wants to be burned on the pyre, and he wants his loved ones to be there with him. He dies. He pays the money to have that done. Then, after his death, the wife is desperately paying more money to the same people to get a substitute for herself so that she does not have to be the one on the pyre after all. <laughs> yeah, it was, it's like the old Indian, uh, as in India Indians, um, you know, concept of widows being thrown on the pyre, though at least it is equal opportunity gender, because it does say wife or husband. Um, well, it's Viking too, right? Oh, yeah, that too. Um, <laughs> but you can at least buy your way out of it, apparently. Sorry, you mailed him. You're getting on the funeral barge with him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, 
So that was my deity. Oh, I thought God. that was cool. So you could see there's at least three awesome deities to be <laughs> run either in Pelennor or stolen for your own home campaign. And then, I guess, any other comments on the deities of Pelennor, or shall we move into products? I, I think we've done more than enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've scared our listeners more than enough. Okay, on to products of your imagination. In new Dungeons & Dragons, power is won by finding new ways to battle. I can feel the darkness inside me! And being completely dragon-flapping awesome. Set comes with spellbook, ritual rites, playboard, sacrificial dagger, and dice, dice, dice! TSR Hobbies Dungeons & Dragons games, products of your imagination. Hoi! This is going to be an odd one, because we're going to give a link to the PDF that's a compilation of all the Imagine Magazine articles of Pelennor, which comes out to about 60 pages. Though I think the last 10 pages of that is a module. Um, that everybody should go immediately download so you can read it and disagree with us viciously via email. Absolutely. Or voicemail. <laughs> um, Imagine Magazine is available on Internet Archive, archive.org, if you want to go and read them, quote-unquote, in the manner in which they were originally intended. After Imagine Magazine was canceled, the guys who came up with Pelinor actually continued it on in a publication called The Game Master, and it expanded Pelinor a bit, um, I don't know if it was too much. We didn't have access to that. We were just concentrating on Imagine Magazine. But that went on for five issues and then was canceled in turn. I uh, don't know if that's available anywhere. But anyway, this is going to be hard for you guys to judge format and stuff because it's you know articles out of a magazine that just happen to be jammed together. There's no cool back images for you to complain about. <laughs> so... Um, over to you guys. Well, I don't know who the person was who was drawing the maps. Oh, my Lord, the maps. They were awesome. I loved all of those maps and the layouts of the buildings, you know, the schematics. You know, I do know when they went to, to Game Master for those five publications, they used the same artist. I don't recall the guy's name off the top of my head, but he did continue in the additional work. Oh, man, he was awesome sauce. It was just, ah! <laughs> yeah, I heartily agree. I mean, beautiful, hand-drawn, hand-lettered. It's like you didn't, it's, you look at these maps and you go, well, I didn't know a map could be this good. They would yeah. work, they would, you could publish them today. Okay. I mean, the, you know, they're magazine articles. You know, in that regard, you know, it's the typeface is it's bland, it's utilitarian. The artwork, the hand-drawn cartography and calligraphy, they are what make this just an utter thing of beauty, and you know, push it over the edge from just being a boring-looking magazine article. It's like wow. Is it on graph paper? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, a lot of the maps are on the hex graph stuff. Oh, cool. So, cool. You know, there you go. But generally, no. But generally, no. Um, okay. Oh, I loved it so much. You know, 
However, to not be a total fangirl, I will also say there are some occasional typos, some errors that were not caught during publication. There was an occasion where NPC changed, his name changed within the same article, caused a little bit of confusion for me. Um, So, you know, it's not all sunshine and roses, but it's beautiful. You know, the pros far outweigh the cons, in my opinion. Okay. Jim? Oh, I just agree and reinforce everything Liz said. I mean, as far as layout goes and font choices, I mean, it's nice standard magazine, clean standard magazine layout for the day, and, uh, you know, obviously comparable with Dragon Magazine of the same year and time. Nice clean columns, nice font choices. As you as you noted, no annoying you know background watermarks. <laughs> okay, uh, maybe a little you know there's there's not a great deal of straightforward fantasy illustration. I mean, in the there there's some you know illumination of the maps that's nice, but maybe it could have benefited from that. But the maps are so damn gorgeous. Well, and of course, since it's a compilation of articles, it's kind of it doesn't quite have the same flow as say you know, a gazetteer would have with, you know, section to section when the, when it was intentionally built as one whole piece. But beyond that, I found it very readable. Um, to disagree slightly with Liz, I will say that while the NPCs in the City League did seem to be really intricately connected to each other, I did not find any of those that were plot specific you know it, one of those if you didn't follow this it doesn't like cause a domino effect that will wreck you know plots all down the line if you're using the city maybe maybe they're there and i just missed them but i never got that feeling from some of the details i i will agree with that you you um, could i think safely ignore all of the extra folder all that came with a lot of them okay <laughs> All right, well, um, shall we give it some dragons then? Wow, it's been so long I forgot we did that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we'll start with Liz then. All righty. This was a a pretty, pretty cool little, pretty cool little world here, you know, despite the things that I've said that bother me, you know, again, the pros far outweigh the cons. And there's a lot that you can use, you know, you can either take it all, you can easily just take a little, and it's not, very few bits of this are so setting specific that they would look weird being dropped into somebody else's campaign world in part, Um, which I think is, you know, a very, you know, strong selling point for it as well. I would probably... I'll give this four out of five dragons. Okay. Yep. It's real solid. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to rate it for what it is, uh, even though these kinds of things are not, uh, you know, I not my cup of tea. Um, but for, you know, production value content and uh, content... Uh, let me say that over again. For production value and content, it's a solid four out of five. Okay. Everybody should get it and go look at it. Yeah, I mean, it's free. Why not? Um, kind of hope that the creators of Pelinor are listening to this show, and of course they are. <laughs> um, well, you never know. 
would consider uh, Kickstartering, you know, to republish it. Oh, I think wow. that'd be awesome. Just a thought. All right, well, let's do this right. Somebody, even if the, the right, original writers aren't listening, somebody's listening who knows somebody who knows somebody. Yeah, get the word out, guys. Because I'm going to beat everybody and give it a four and a half. This is almost precisely the sort of campaign setting I love. You know, a good framework, but enough detail on the inside so that I can make it my own. And historical references that don't drive you insane. Insane. And they're wrongness. (laughs) So that should be average 4.2 maybe? 4.15? Something like. Four and a smidge. 12.5 12.5 divided by 3 is 4.16 continuing decibel. Da, 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 da. Yeah. Four and a smidge. Hooray! I hope we've at least piqued the listeners' interests in Pelinor and willing to go take a look at it. Um, there were some forums for Pelinor on the Piazza. I haven't been there in a few weeks, so and there was talk maybe of shutting it down. I hope they didn't. Um, there are fan sites out there. That are for Pelinor. It, yeah, it was Pelinor, the Pelinor fan site, the official one that was going to get shut down, not, not the forums at Piazza. But there's plenty of stuff out there. You know, Kelry was able to compile this huge amount of fan based stuff that you can use. I haven't looked at it, but um, if you're one, if 60 pages isn't enough for you, you still may have some more stuff you can, you can roll into it. And Hope you take a look at it. Meanwhile, we're going to head down the dusty road of gamerdom. Looking into the future. And how are we heading down the road? Jim! Uh, I'm jumping on my ship and sailing straight to the edge of this flat world to see if it gets me to the astral plane or not. Woohoo! Well, you'll find out one way or the other. And Liz? But if I pack a ring of flying, I don't really care what happens to anybody else. <laughs> or a deck of many things. You've got some good odds there. Uh, I am going down that road with a with an old, a weak old man who who seems to need my help, and I, I might be able to to do something about that. Yeah, that's very lawful of you. Well done. Well I done. thought so. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm heading down the road, and I'm kind of picking up my pace, because I'm about to start my new job as a prosecutor in the City League. Chan-chan. Da-da. <laughs> With funeral costs covered. Which reminds me, Liz, I need to talk to you about the funeral arrangements. Ah, do you now? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we might be having a disagreement here. <laughs> they, they provide a pyre and everything. It's awesome. You know, so, They'll anyway. leave a pyre on for you? That's right. Oh, Lord. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a wrap, and we'll see you guys at 127. Bye. See ya. Pre-arc. And that's that. Podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions in association with D20Radio.com. The Saberdye theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at MississippiBones.bandcamp.com. Promotional consideration for tonight's episode was provided by Summer Meadow, the Elven fragrance best used on a Midsummer Night's Eve. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save or Die. Gumbali, 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 gumbali
Yeah, mostly. Uh, I still can't. Can you understand his name? DM something? Uh, let me play it again. DM Appleseed. Appleseed. Um, okay. Guess we'll go from there. You know, he's going across the American frontier planting little D20s. Or he's a one eyed robot with fins, with rabbit ears. Oh, wait. Anime reference, sorry. 